Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Over the past several years, corporations and entire industries have quickly made statements and some policy changes in response to social and racial justice movements. Those statements and initiatives, however, often exist as a feel-good marketing initiative or sincere efforts with unintended consequences. In her new book, Some of My Best Friends, Essays on Lip Service, my guest Taja Eisen explores these efforts and the realities they mask and reveal. Sparky, have you noticed that everyone has been acting weird lately? I mean, more weird? After the documentary, um, you know, the problem with Apu about the, the convenience store character that you used to voice, you said, I'm not going to voice that character anymore. In the wake of protests against systemic racism in America, Many industries are re-examining past practices and facing questions about their own racial biases. One new effort puts a spotlight on the world of publishing. Nothing changes if nothing changes. No more lip service. Hi, I'm Taja Eisen, and I'm committed to making the publishing industry more accessible and inclusive and helping writers tell the stories they're passionate about. Sorry, not sorry. Taja, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. And I want to get to your book, but first, will you just tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. First of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. My name is Taja Eisen. I am a writer, an editor, and a voice actor. I just released my first book of essays, Some of My Best Friends, Essays on Lip Service, which is about the ways that various institutions have gotten very good at speaking the language of social justice, but don't always follow through. In your book, you talk about the conscious choice of the term lip service instead of performative allyship or virtue signaling. Tell us why. I felt like in the case of both of those other terms, they've been used a lot and they've been used a lot in bad faith, especially something like virtue signaling. It's often used as a way of sort of dismissing an action or an attempt rather than seriously engaging with it. So what I loved about the term lip service was that it felt comparatively unburdened and more flexible than those other two, more like something I could 
use in various contexts and also shape to the needs of each individual essay. And I also like that it emphasizes the talk aspect. Like as soon as you hear lip service, you know what that means. You know what it means to sort of pay lip service to something and not do anything about it. Can you just give us some examples of lip service? Totally. Lip service, in some of the ways it plays out in the book, it often involves stating a commitment to something and that's where it ends, not following up that verbal commitment with any kind of action. So it's really about that gap between what we say and what we do. So an example of it might be a publication that issues a statement that says we are committed to diversity and committed to uplifting the voices of minoritized and racialized writers. And that's so important to us in the work that we do. And then the stuff that they put out remains like 99% white and they don't do anything to sort of honor what it is that they said. They just said it for the optics. We want to first hold people accountable to their commitments, first and foremost, to the topic of this panel conversation, the lip service. Um, we've been served that conversation before as a people. And so for us, we want to make sure that an industry that we live in, that we believe in, that we believe have the opportunity to transform this country, this nation, this world, uh, first live up to, to, to the commitments that they made. Changing gears a little bit, you started your career auditioning for roles as a child. I can relate. Initially for on-camera roles. And you write about a series of auditions. I thought this was so fascinating where directors asked you to sound more street, but not being willing to or able to explain to you what that actually meant to them. And you were only like nine years old at the time. Were you aware of the racial coding that was happening? Honestly, not right away. Like it took me, it it happened a few times before I even thought to mention it to my parents. And it it was them who who sort of were put in the unenviable position of having to explain to me what that meant and how, how racist it was. And so I, it was the reason they couldn't explain it to me is because they, the, the reason that, you know, that none of these directors for on-camera projects could ever explain what they meant would is because to explain it would have revealed how reductive and racist that logic was. That like, oh, we think that if there's going to be a Black character on screen, this is the tiny space in which that character will be allowed to live. And these are the stereotypical behaviors that we need you, a nine-year-old child, <laughs> to, to perform. So it was just this bizarre kind of enigmatic encounter where they would tell me this word. And because I didn't understand what, what stereotypes they had in their mind, because I was nine years old and blissfully unaware, it was a very strange process to come into that understanding. Yeah. Tell me about what that process entailed and what happened as a result afterwards. So I, you know, I I asked my parents about it. We talked about it. When I understood what it was that they were asking for, I didn't feel comfortable doing that. I mean, really what, what the outcome of it was is that I ended up stepping away from on-camera work because as I write in the book, I found more freedom, more permissiveness in the world of animation and cartoons. So it, it sort of spoiled <laughs> on-camera acting for me quite early. You were cast as Sister Bear in Berenstein Bear's series. And in the book, you write about the sense of invisibility that comes with getting behind the microphone to voice and create a character. I know what you meant by that, because I I feel that same freedom when I'm doing voiceover work. But tell our listeners what you mean by that. 
I guess the the first time I so the Berenstain Bears was my very first my very first gig, my first voice acting job that I booked and just having that focus taken off of my body and how I looked and the way that people expected how I looked would dictate my behavior just felt incredibly liberating even as a creative person as a performer taking that out of the equation I felt I was able to do so much more, was able to do more interesting work. And I also think I just took to the energy of it quite a lot. Like I love the sort of high octane vibe of cartoon work and really found a a niche there. I've been doing that work now for mm, 20 years. And you opened the book talking about the efforts of the animation industry made and is making to try to be more equitable, but which actually often become cases of good intentions gone wrong. And I think it's such an important way to start the book, right? Because there are so many good intentions that go horribly wrong. And I think part of that is because we never, we're not listening to those closest to the pain. We're just trying to figure out where we go from here. So tell us a bit about that. And maybe, I don't know, maybe tell us how you think the animation industry can and should move beyond that history. Absolutely. And I'm I'm so grateful to you for saying that it was an important way to open the book because that was a very conscious decision on my part was to establish, to take this context, the cartoon industry, where this context that I love, that I work in, that I still work in, that's very important to me. And to say, hey, I see this gesture that you're making towards equity. I appreciate it. It's just not the totality of the solution. Like it's just a quick fix. It's not Like it's the beginning of a fix, but this is not the end of the conversation. So it was really important to set that up as a a template that the rest of the book would follow, that sometimes to pay lip service to something is well-intended. Sometimes these gestures are sincere. Um, And that's what I believe to be true in the case of animation is that when we saw a lot of high profile white actors stepping down from voicing characters of color, that that was a good first step. Huge story kind of like took over Twitter yesterday and taking over headlines today. Uh, Jenny Slate announced on Instagram that she will no longer be voicing Missy, a biracial character on Netflix's Big Mouth. Uh, production on Big Mouth, by the way, season four has already wrapped. So Jenny's voice will be in that season on the upcoming season, but producers say that they are actively looking for a black or multiracial voice uh, to fill the role. I think all of the attention that was put on those very high profile resignations meant that we weren't talking about how we weren't talking about the ways that inequity permeates the rest of the industry and how we might fix that. The conversation to me, especially as it took place in just mainstream media, felt like, okay, this bad thing was happening. We fixed it. Now the racism is gone. And the new sort of the new rule that sort of emerged from those actors stepping down was we should be more faithful to authenticity and Black characters should only be played by Black people. And the what that ignores is how many Black characters are there? The answer, not that many. Are we going to work on, you know, writing more of them? Who's writing them? Whose stories are we getting to tell? So... I think these conversations are happening in the animation industry and they have been for some time, like absolutely since before the summer of 2020 and all this stuff exploded. But it was important to me to bring that lens to, like it was important to me that the actors who stepped down were not 
the only part of the conversation that sort of went on outside the industry. And it was also important to me to connect it to a sort of broader history of cartoons itself and the way that cartoons and race always had this interesting and contentious and sometimes very problematic, but also sometimes very sort of generative relationship. So that was my aim with that piece. The book is a mix of personal experience, but it's also deeply rooted in great research and data. So tell us about the experience of actually researching for the book and how it informed you in your writing. All of the pieces, almost all of the pieces were very research first. I would immerse myself in the subject and absorb everything I could and let that dictate the shape the essay would take. And I think a lot of the, I mean, I I sort of pursued the various subjects because they often are ones that touched on my own life, whether that's the cartoon industry or the literary industry or the law, because I also, I went to law school. That was a weird detour that my life took. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I sort of, I I had the kind of personal connection that set me on the path of each of these subjects and, and felt like I was starting to see this emergent pattern in so many of the worlds that I inhabited were lip service. Like I was sort of sensing that they were all getting very good at speaking the language of equity, of diversity, of proclaiming their commitment to it. The first group of companies made commitments that were visible. They made commitments that they thought they could follow through with. And then when push came to shove, they actually didn't have deep enough conviction to make good on the promises that they made. Some of those companies committed to internal anti-racism trainings, um, uh, unconscious bias, um, those kinds of things. But that's not actually enough to become a truly anti-racist company. So I thought, what is the history of this relationship? What does the past of race and cartoons look like? What does the history of affirmative action have to do with the contemporary ways that we use the term diversity today? Tell me about that in particular. You know, we just, it it sort of is used so kind of freely and casually now that, you know, what does it, what do we, what do we truly mean when we say it and where did that meaning come from? And it means something different to everyone. Absolutely. I just did an interview with a um, a conservative, John Kasich, and he was interviewing me and he was talking about how my industry wasn't diverse. And I was like, but tell me what you think that diversity entails. He's like, well, there's no Republicans that are actors. Mm -hmm. And I was like, see, that's not what I think of when I think of the word diversity. So I think that's part of it, too, is like we have these these, you know, there's no perfect language and we all bring our own sort of tilt to these words. Mm -hmm. And I think that is part like we can't even get on the same page as what the word diversity should mean to these industries. Yeah. And the like the landmark Supreme Court case that diversity comes from, that, that the word and its usage comes from is because one of the justices thought that 
there weren't enough mandating affirmative action quotas meant there were, wouldn't be enough white people. And genuine diversity has to include categories like farm boys from Idaho. That's an actual example from the judgment. That's not like just me pulling that out. And so, you know, it has become a word that originally, if the intention was to remedy past injustices with present opportunity, which was the original rationale of affirmative action, now a word like diversity just means everybody being nice to each other. <laughs> like It's traveled very far from what the original rationale was. I also thought that there was this very interesting part of your book that I would love for you to talk about. And you write about the boxes Black voice actors are put in and how some non-human characters are racially coded. How does that affect the way actors and fans experience, not only experience animation, but how they then experience life? Oh, that's interesting. I think it depends on the stage at which that call gets made. As I write about in the book, sometimes it's a matter of, sometimes a, <laughs> um, a non-human character becomes racialized by virtue of the actor who's playing them. And so it's not like they're scripted in any particularly leading way. It's just sort of a matter of the casting. But I do talk about a piece, there's this amazing piece by the writer Sarah Haggie that came out in Vice in 2017 that does talk about the ways that various non-human characters are racially coded. And it's something that's almost only recognizable to Black viewers. Black cartoon characters. Oh, I should be more specific. Actually, Black non-human cartoon characters. Yeah, let's talk about it. That's right. Cartoon characters that aren't human, but are coded in a way so that most people assume that they are Black. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Like, they are the only ones who are able to pick up on those cues. It's an incredibly sharply observed piece, but it, it does tie the pattern that it observes to the fact that there's just not that many human Black characters on TV. So, for example, for a young Black viewer who might come to the medium looking for some sort of representation, they do latch on to the character that they perceive to be most, that they feel some sort of kinship with. And that's non-white viewers have to jump through a lot more hoops in order to find representation. And you write about diversity hire, and especially the work that you and other people of color are called upon to be on display saying, this regrettably became my schema for diversity work. Conscription mm. with no right of refusal, a sense that my presence was always at risk of being exchanged for usefulness, and the extent of my usefulness lay in agreeing that something was rotten. Please unpack that a little bit. <laughs> sure. So in various professional contexts where I've been in my life, there has often come a moment where it's felt like, okay, you're here. That's great. You are the quote unquote diverse presence in this office or this room or this masthead or whatever, help us make it better. So what I'm writing about in that part of the book and in that in those lines that you read is the idea, this sort of this pattern that racialized people often get pulled into of the fact of their presence in a space being a sign that things are improving. You're here. So that's good. Now it is automatically your job to fix the rest of the problems of inequity that plague the space. And of course, that's totally unfair. Like, <laughs> we're just there. We're not, you know, trained in diversity work. And we're not, that's not, that's a sure path to burnout. So 
in that part of the book and in that essay, I really write about the importance of, it's always important to me when I am in a new sort of professional space or context. Like, of course, I do want to bring other folks into the room with me that I do consider that a part of my job, but that's very different from being told by an institution that it is part of your job to make them look better, to do the work that they should already be investing resources in. Yeah, I feel like that's true in in every industry right now. Do the fucking work. Do you see any places, different companies or industries or organizations who are actually getting it right? I think yes, but I think the people who are getting it right are giving it, well, two things, giving it time and acknowledging that there is no quick fix and that it's an ongoing process. And two, they're putting money and resources into it. They're for some, say, offices, not all of them. You do want to, the right thing to do is to pay for a consultant to sort of come in and do this work. But that's just one part of it. I think some places are more willing to acknowledge their existing problems than others. And I think the ones that are facing up to the way things have been done badly in the past and to take that as the first step for moving into the future, they're the ones who are getting it right. What do you think all of this lip service does to us as a society. Is it different on local, national, or global levels? Yes, is my instinct. I think the thing that they all have in common, it's what it does to us is that it makes speech too easy. If it becomes too easy to say things, then it's easier to say something while not meaning anything at all. And that's so dangerous for many reasons. And so I I really wanted the book to be a space where me and the reader can kind of pause, slow down, parse a lot of this language and really ask, what does it mean? Because I think people know lip service when they see it. I think it's a very familiar concept to us now. Systemic also refers to our corporations, our businesses, our boardrooms, you know, the way that we act and behave in our hallways. And so for me, it's, it's equally important for businesses to get into the, into the business of dismantling systemic racism because it exists in their buildings. And so before looking out and trying to figure out what the world can do to solve the issues, I encourage business leaders to look in-house and see how they can also make differences within their own corridors. We live so much of our lives online that when we see a corporation stumble into clunkily using the language of social justice that obviously isn't backing it up, that's absurd to us. Like we know how to point it out and often laugh about it. I also feel that lip service taps into a part of us that is innate in us all, which is the ability to hope. When you hear words, sometimes they can trigger hopefulness. And in the moment, I don't know that we are, as human beings, are capable of immediately recognizing what moments of lip service, because we want to believe so badly that the words people are speaking 
especially on inclusion and diversity and making a more equitable opportunity and business for everyone. So I think it taps into a certain amount of hope that we sort of need to have, right? Like I'm thinking back to the things I've been super disappointed where people have not fulfilled promises made, especially in the political realm. And the thing that keeps coming up in my head is President Biden, when he was a candidate, there was a lot of lip service about the Equal Rights Amendment. And he had it part of his women's platform. And I think what that invokes is hope. Oh, my God, like this could be the guy that makes women have equality in our Constitution. And it's not until later where you can go, oh, no, that was lip service. So I think the initial thing is maybe hope. I think you're absolutely right. I think we do have a kind of like the allure of lip service is that it promises, it looks like it might make things better. And of course, we would be drawn to that desire, especially in a, a political, cultural, environmental moment like this. But that's that's why it's all the more critical to be able to spot it and pitch the demands that we make of our elected representatives or our bosses. It helps to be able to know, <laughs> to be able to like call the bullshit when we see it. And finally, my final question is what gives you hope? That's a great question. What gives me hope? Um, I'm really lucky that my, my work gives me a lot of hope. I work as an editor and I'm in a position where I can find, I can discover and nurture and uplift new voices and feel like I am making some tiny contribution toward making the literary publishing and media industries more inclusive, more accessible, and just bringing in a wider range of stories and allowing writers to tell whatever stories they want and not feel pigeonholed. Working with those writers gives me hope as does being able to do that kind of work. Well, Taja, I send you give me hope. <laughs> Thank you, Alyssa. <laughs> Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So authors are sharing how much they are getting in advance. Usually this is super hush-hush. Sometimes you have contracts that are like, do not tell. Like it's, you know, you'll, you'll be sued by your publishing company if you share the numbers they don't want people to know how much that you know people are getting paid because then people start asking questions so people authors are being transparent and they are sharing these numbers and they are whoo it's wild it is wild the disparities lip service it's a great term for the way so many of us even those of us who are very sincere, approach issues of justice. It's inherent in our activism. We go to a march. We chant the same chants. Sometimes we get a meeting with a bureaucrat who congratulates us for our commitment and promises to take things under consideration. And we go, you know, pat ourselves on the back as we head to Starbucks. Maybe we'll get a corporation to commit to some changes that feel significant and big but will be used to market just how progressive the company is. It can be hard to hear, especially as a white person who really wants to get it right, but it's so important to hear it. Fixing racial justice can't be the work of white leaders making adjustments to existing structures. It has to be white people following the lead of black, brown, queer, indigenous, 
and other marginalized communities. And where necessary, tearing down and rebuilding systems from the ground up in a way which changes the systems of inequity. It's far past time for us to stop paying lip service and start paying attention. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry.